You know, not, none of us really enjoy waiting. It's not our favorite thing to do. Um, this past week, I had the privilege of having my annual physical. I know. So before I went into the doctor, where did I find myself? In a waiting room. I think they ought to rename that room. You know? I've come up with some ideas. Some, like an almost there room. Any minute now room. Right? You know what? I found myself in this waiting room. That was bad enough. You know what else was... This was terrible. I left my phone in my office. You know what I'm saying, right? We as modern Americans, we never really just wait. We always have something in our hands to do something with. And uh, I had to chuckle with the Lord because I have, uh, was working on this message. <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you some opportunity right here to wait. 40 minutes, I was left to my own thoughts. And I thought, you know, this is kind of refreshing, actually, to be able to just sit, think. But it's something like uh, we don't necessarily always do or enjoy. Sometimes we don't want to wait or refuse to wait because the situation is fairly urgent. Uh, let's say there's a bad car accident, someone's hurt, and... Uh, you're waiting on the ambulance. I mean, minutes can seem like hours. In Mark 5, we see two stories with Jesus that are kind of intertwined together. One involves this Jewish leader, Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter is dying. And he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, I need you to come and uh, tend to my daughter. And while he and Jesus and the entourage are making their way to his daughter, there's this delay. They have to wait. Their journey is preempted. It's preempted by another healing of some nameless woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And I just kind of want us to work our way through Mark 5, these two stories, starting with the 22nd verse. Let me read the first couple of verses. It says this, One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her, so that she will get well and live. I think if you read over that too quickly, you don't understand the context of really what is culturally happening here. Jairus is this leader in the synagogue. He's, he's kind of like an executive pastor that we would have today. He's in charge of things. He's in charge to making sure the rabbis be are where they're supposed to be. All the staff is functioning. Everything is just happening in the synagogue the right way. He is in charge. He is the person of authority in the Jewish community. But Jairus finds himself with a problem. His daughter is at the point of death. And the, the original language suggests that uh, she's as good as dead, is the way he says it. And yet there's something inside of Jairus, this Jewish leader, that says, I've heard that this Jesus, this new prophet in town, has healed people. Could he possibly heal my 12-year-old daughter? But time was of the essence. 
If Jesus didn't come with him now, it would be too late. There was absolutely no time to wait. You know, I wonder about Jairus. I wonder what he had thought of Jesus before his daughter got sick. I, I mean, he had to have heard the conversation about Jesus in the temple. His other fellow Jewish leaders thought Jesus was a competitor and a charlatan and somebody that needed to be squished and stopped. And Perhaps Jairus himself had said things about Jesus that weren't favorable to him. But for some reason, everything was different. Synagogue ruler Jairus had turned into now desperate Jairus. His little girl was dying. So all of those things that he had said, all the things that had been said about Jesus, his prejudice, it was also gone. He, it says he fell at the feet of Jesus. You have to understand this authority in the Jewish culture, Jairus, falling at the feet of this new upstart Prophet that many of his cohorts thought was false. It would have been humiliating for any synagogue leader to fall at the feet of someone, let alone a rival. But his little girl was dying. And so his dignity is gone even. Doesn't matter. I will fall at his feet if it will give me my girl back. He had to ask for help from Jesus and subjecting himself to perhaps be indebted to Jesus. In other words, his pride was gone. In verse 23, Jairus tells Jesus that uh, if he would just come and lay hands on my daughter, she's going to get well. She'll live. You know, it's interesting to me when I study this that uh, the, the, the word translated get well is the Greek word sozo, and it is, um, there's a different word for being healed. This word sozo means to be saved, delivered, rescued, even made whole. In fact, it's the most commonly used word in the scriptures for referring to one's salvation from sin. Here's an example, 4.12 of Acts. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, sozo. Jairus is saying that his daughter doesn't need to necessarily be healed as much as she needs to be rescued, delivered, and saved from death. And he's desperate. He's willing to pay any price, do anything, in order to see his daughter live. Desperate people really only want one thing, right? <laughs> They just want to be saved. They just want to be saved. If you're on a boat in a raging sea, you only want one thing. I want somebody to come with a bigger boat. <laughs> I want to be saved. If you're lost, you, you really only want one thing. You want to be found. You want to be saved and rescued. And if you're dying, you want to be spared. You want to be saved. And so Jesus, he, uh, and his little entourage go with Jairus to see the daughter who's dying. And then we have an interruption on their journey. Let me read the passage starting in verse 24. 
And he, meaning Jesus, went off with him, meaning Jairus, and the, a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much, understand her situation, had endured much at the hands of many physicians <laughs> and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had gotten worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. There's that word again, sozo. Not healed, I will be delivered. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up in her, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples, as they're always prone to do, is help Jesus along and correct him a little bit. <laughs> said to Jesus, You see the crowd pressing in on you when you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. She'd quietly tried to sneak in a touch there, hadn't she? <laughs> now she's the center of attention. And the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well, Sozo. <laughs> Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Another desperate individual in need of rescue, deliverance, salvation. And her situation is that she is not only physically sick with bleeding, but she has been declared spiritually unclean. She is forbidden to enter the temple. Anyone who comes in contact with this lady is banished from the temple until evening. Can you imagine? It says that she'd gone to doctors and they'd only made her worse. It says she spent all of her money. The passage wants you and I to connect with her isolation and her desperation. Yet there's hope. Jesus is in town. <laughs> oh, if I could just touch his garment. I can be made whole, I can be rescued, I can be delivered. Oh, but look at all these people. She's not going to be deterred. Because she's what? Desperate. She knows this is her day. She reaches out and she grabs the tassels that at the bottom of his robe, and immediately she senses in her body the, the blood stops flowing, and she knows that she is healed of her affliction. And the word affliction here is the word scourge. It's the same word they used to scourge Jesus with the whips. But then this very odd thing happens. In the midst of all of these people and all of this crowd, in, the, the Savior speaks and he says, Who touched me? Have you ever done something, have you ever been in a situation where you've tried to do something very quietly and then all of a sudden you're just center stage? <laughs> Who 
touched me. Well, obviously his, his disciples think, Jesus, that is really a dumb question. <laughs> Reminds me of a time I was in Moldova in Eastern Europe and I was on a bus and I just thought, I'm just going to, for the sake of things, I'm just going to count how many people are touching me right now. <laughs> there were seven. I still remember it. That's kind of the situation. Yeah, Jesus knew something spiritual, something supernatural, something divine has proceeded from me. I want to know who was just supernaturally delivered. Desperate people catch the attention of Jesus. <laughs> Desperate people catch the attention of the Savior. It's like, a, it's like he's laser-focused on this lady. Gives her his complete attention. The crowd doesn't really matter anymore. It's just him and this woman having this connection. I want to hear all about it. Tell me the whole truth. She's afraid and she's trembling, but out she comes with it. Everybody probably knows this is the lady you're not supposed to be around. He's talking to her. I was in desperate need. No one else could help me. I've been everywhere. I've tried everything. I've had this condition for 12 years and I'm in isolation. I'm lonely. I didn't want to make a big scene, but I knew I just had this belief that if I could just touch your garment, you would rescue me. I wonder how many of us today could testify to the fact that Jesus at some point in our life, met us. Perhaps in a dark, desperate moment and uh, rescued us. I remember a situation in my college days and uh, I was at a music camp and leading into that, I thought that, uh, well, you have to understand I was 21 years old. I thought I was God's gift to music. And I was getting ready for this music camp where we were going to try out for solos and audition for solos and I had my, my mind set on this particular solo that I know that it's, why even try out, right? It's just, I'm going to get it, I know it. And then the camp was held in a mountain community, a mountain camp, and we were there and there was came, day for, came the day for the tryouts and uh, the mountain air was dry and I wasn't used to that at the time and uh, it got a hold of my throat, kind of like some of those around here lately. <laughs> I want you to know, as they asked me to try out, a frog would have sounded better. I could even see others looking around, wondering, how in the world did he get into this camp? <laughs> And I remember leaving that uh, tryout embarrassed, uh, wounded, uh, but mostly I had been exposed to the spiritual sickness in my heart. I was spiritually sick of myself and uh, later that day found myself alone with God, desperate, to not be this way anymore. 
desperate for him, desperate for his life, desperate for his forgiveness. And you know what he did? (laughs) Rescued me. Changed me. Changed my heart. And there is, uh, there is absolutely no physical deliverance or physical healing even that could compare with the spiritual change of heart that God works in the lives of people. He, he tells the woman, your faith, your belief in me has brought you this deliverance today. He says, go in peace. Be healed. Desperate people only have really one thing, and that's faith. There's not an exchange here. There's not, okay, Jesus, I have this to offer you. You have this to offer me. Let's have this exchange. I don't have really anything to offer. All I have is faith, this desperate faith. And I love the, I love the uh, admonition of, of, of Jesus to her. There were, there were absolutely no stipulations given. You don't really owe me anything. There's, there's no expectations. Uh, now, now that I have uh, delivered you, there's an obligation you have. Uh, years and years of obedience. And He says, just go and live in your deliverance. <laughs> just go and live in your deliverance. Your faith has accomplished this. Paul writes it like this. He says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. I can't save myself. I can't live the way I know I ought to, so I just simply believe. That's it. I believe. And I'm washed by the grace of God. And, and I, it's not that I have a reciprocal owing of him because he has needed nothing from me. He just wants to live in me. And so as I go healed and delivered and saved, I I go forth living in the healing, deliverance, and salvation that he's given me. I'm here to warn you, don't ever start thinking you have what it takes. Anybody ever been there? I have what it takes to be a good Christian. Don't ever... Don't ever put value on your efforts. Uh, Jesus says, just keep believing. You know what brought you into the faith. Now just keep on that. Keep believing in me. The life you are now living, you only live by faith. And the Son of God who loves you gave his life for you. Just keep believing. So, imagine you're Jairus watching this whole thing with Jesus and the woman. What's on your mind? Come on! We gotta go, we gotta go! Look what it says in Mark five thirty-five. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? The unthinkable has happened. 
didn't Jesus understand the situation? How many of you ever asked God that? Don't you understand my situation? Don't you understand how this is? Come on! Didn't Jesus realize what might happen if we don't get there in time? Somebody here today needs this point. Jesus is never late. Amen? Jesus is never, ever late. He always knows what he's doing. He always knows the situation. He knew in this situation, death is not the final verdict. If you could just see what I see. He is able to see things we'll never see. Which again, prompts what from us? Faith. I don't know why this is happening. But I trust you. I have no idea why I'm still struggling with this. But I trust you. Isaiah put it this way in 55.8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Let me ask you, do you accept that today? Do you accept the fact that God doesn't think the way you think about things? <laughs> Amen. You see, God has this, uh, this, this, this huge perspective. He sees everything and uh, the past and the future. And he can see all these things. And he understands the situations of our life many times so differently than we do. And uh, So let me ask you this question and think about it. Do you want God's will for your life no matter what? Amen, right? We want God's will for our life, no matter what, right? Well, Jairus, the will for your life is that your daughter's going to die. You want God's word for your will for your life, right? Wrestle with this question for a minute. Do you want to fulfill God's will for your life, or do you want God to fulfill your will for your life? <laughs> I mean, don't we often pray trying to coax God to fulfill our will for our life? God has a plan for your life. You have a plan for your life. Which one do you think is better? And you have to read the next verse in Isaiah 55, 9. It says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That word higher means to soar above, to tower over. His plan for your life towers over your little puny, insignificant one. <laughs> Amen? Amen. <laughs> and sometimes submitting to the will of God, even though it seems the more difficult path, and it's, it's, it seems a little bit hard, it seems a little bit scary, it's always far more exciting <laughs> and far more fulfilling People will come around you and say, why are you stepping out in such, uh, in, in faith like that? Why are you stepping out and doing something so crazy like that? And, 
<laughs> Jairus, quit talking to him. She's dead. Give up. Just let him go. It's too late. I just wonder what Jairus is thinking if he's just totally confused in the emotions that may be welling up in him. Perhaps anger and uh, regret and uh, maybe he's really upset with this lady who got healed. That lady killed my child. Look how Jesus says, responds to Jairus in 36. But Jesus overhearing what was being spoken said to the synagogue official, Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. How would you like to hear those words? In the midst of uh, life just kind of crashing in around you. <laughs> Don't be scared. Just believe. That's the point. When everything is falling apart, Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Trust me. I mean, he understands. We, we want answers. We want resolutions in, uh, that, that, that happen in our favor, don't we? We want the conflict to cease, and we want the relationship mended, and uh, we want the sickness gone. And he keeps saying in response to our intercessions and prayers and pleadings, he says to us, trust me, child. Don't be afraid. And, and part of trust me is just let it go. See what I can do with this. Uh, another part of the word trust me is wait, right? Trust me. Wait and see what I may do. It's coming. In the story, Jesus takes only three of his disciples. It says, very specifically, Peter, James, and John to the house where the dead girl is. There's already mourning that has started in the house, and Jesus confronts the mourners with these words, he says, why make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, she's asleep. It's as if Jesus minimizes even, can we even say, kind of even makes fun of the darkness that is engulfing the home. This thing that you ordinary people see as reality this huge darkness of death is not really what's going on here. She's just sleeping. <laughs> and Jesus is trying to build into them faith. And what do they do in response to Jesus when he says, she's just sleeping? What do they do in the house? Laugh at him. Now, Think about it. Has Jesus ever tried to provoke faith from you about a situation? You just go, oh, that's silly to even think about. 
That's what they do. They laugh at him. Don't miss the climax here of the story. Verse 41. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. Which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. I bet they were. You know, we know that Mark gets his information about Jesus from the Apostle Peter. Some have even said that the gospel should be the gospel of Peter rather than the gospel of Mark. So we can be, we can have great confidence to know that this is Peter's account of what happened that day. He was in the room. He actually heard Jesus say, Talitha kum. Words that were so personal so intimate and so beautiful. He, he, he didn't even want to translate them. He, he had to let them stand untouched. It's Aramaic, the original language that Jesus spoke. And so they appear in Scripture just as Jesus said them, and then they're translated. In the Scripture, they're translated into the Greek so the readers of the day could know what they meant. Peter said, it's so precious, it was so real, it was so good. <laughs> We're going to put the Aramaic text. It's, it's, it's the words that a, a parent would go in to wake up a sleeping child. Precious little girl, time to get up. This extraordinary God is deeply intimate and personal with ordinary people. People, aren't you glad? <laughs> what are the words that he's saying to you today? You hear these two stories. You see a synagogue ruler who falls to his feet, just lets go of his dignity, his pride, and his prejudice, and he just, I've got to have healing from a little girl. I've been sick for 12 years and I'm all alone and doctors can't help me. I have nowhere else to go. I'm desperate. And you see how Jesus deals with each one so specifically, so intimately, so personally. And you say, you know, I'm really not all that desperate. I just... My life's fairly comfortable. I, I don't recognize this deep hunger for him. Perhaps when it comes to exercising faith, you, you almost see it as unnecessary. Exercise faith. I'm able to provide for my needs and most of my wants even. And... Uh, Believing in God for the impossible. Believing in God for His divine work 
in illuminating my mind to the truth and to helping me understand the reality of the situation that I face, to really exercise this kind of supernatural faith in a supernatural, extraordinary God. Well, it's, no, my life is all very planned and organized and or, ordinary. No doubt there's people here today that you do face impossible situations and you know without the intervention of God this is never going to change and you've exhausted your resources and uh, it's only gotten worse as it is in the scripture here. And you hear a preacher say and a point on the board and you hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, just believe. And you go, Pah, I need more than that. I'm here to tell you, don't be afraid. The answer is in the faith. The answer is in belief. He's saying, wait, wait. I'm doing something you can't see. And one day I'm going to say to you, Talitha kum, it's, it's over. Time to get up. Believe. I want you to bow your heads with me, please. And as we close this service today, I just want to ask if there is a need for deliverance in your life. It may be that you are here today and uh, you have, um, you've really never taken the step of faith. You've, you've never really sought the Lord for deliverance from your sin. I want you to know it doesn't matter how bad your past has been, God is here today to forgive you, to save you, to deliver you. He will cleanse your soul completely. He will change your heart he will lift the darkness and make you new. What does he want from you for that? Your faith. Will you believe? Jesus, I believe you can deliver me from my sin. I believe today you are the risen Lord whose grace is able to forgive everything I've ever done. I believe in you. I believe in you. Will you pray that prayer today? You know he's here. You know he's calling your name. You know he is... He's, he's not even aware of the crowd around. He's laser focused on you. He's saying, don't be afraid. Just believe. Father, in these moments of decision, I pray for that person that may be here today that has never actually taken the step of faith to trust in you for their salvation, that this would be their day in these moments.
just as I'm praying, that they would whisper that prayer to you. Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you will forgive me. I believe that your death on the cross, your resurrection has paid the price for my sin. I'm so tired of living in my sin, being controlled by my sin. I'm coming to you today and believing, trusting in you and your provision for my salvation. I pray, Father, today for the Christian who's here today and is, uh, is just uh, too comfortable to have these, even these kind of desperate thoughts in their life to say, Lord, I understand how weak I am apart from you. I understand how needy I am of you. I understand that you've blessed me with so much, but I put no hope in them. I put no faith in what you've provided for me. All my hope is in you. All my faith is in you. When I get up in the morning, I want every step that I take to be lived by faith in you because you gave your life for me. I don't want to, re- I don't want to resort to my own resources, Father, anymore. Show me my own desperation, Father. And I will forever praise you. I will forever glorify you.